in a secret lab somewhere in the Western Hemisphere. The perfect human specimen has been born. He has the strength of 10 men and the wisdom of 20. He also has a twin brother. I have a brother? Oh my goodness, this is good. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Born to be bad. And Danny DeVito. Way to go, Mom. Are twins. My name is Julius. I'm your twin brother. Obviously. The moment I sat down, I thought I was looking into a mirror. Only their mother can tell them apart. Twins, the new comedy from Ivan Reitman. Julius. What? What are you, are you allergic to something? You're all swelled up. You look like you're ready to explode. I love it when you hit people. Who are you? Vincent's brother. We're twins. That's right. Twins. Coming this Christmas. Welcome to Reitman for the Jobs Family Reunion. Hey, when you think about it, aren't we all somewhat related? Eh, all my intros can't be winners, folks. Yes, hi, I'm Ross May, and we're covering Twins from 1988. Ivan Reitman had his mega-hit in Ghostbusters, then had a sobering experience with Legal Eagles, listening to his talent agent, and maybe going highbrow when the comedy just wasn't there. But now, in 1988, he's focusing more on the comedy again, and he's got Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger to make sure that happens. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Our question for the day comes from Rainier Wolfcastle. He asks, Ross, what's your favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger movie? You know, I'm not a big Arnold aficionado, or even straight action movies in general. My favorite action movie is Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, Raiders is pretty hard to beat. And on top of being clever and having great locations and set pieces, it's funnier than most other action movies. I don't know, for Arnold? See, I went on a big Schwarzenegger kick to get a feel of his career just recently. I remember liking True Lies years ago, so it's probably True Lies or Terminator 2 for me. Not the sixth day, though, I can tell you that much. Puh. And I know that's not even his worst one, the sixth day. Is Twins anybody's favorite? What about Junior? You Schwarzenegger fans, help me out here and tell me your favorite film. A Muppet News Flash! Ahem. I mean, it's just the news. It's 1988, everybody. I want to cheat and go all the way to June 17th when the movie Red Heat debuted. I want to talk about it because it was Arnold Schwarzenegger's other movie of 1988, and he co-stars with Jim Belushi. It kind of proves Arnold's point about wanting to branch out into comedy, because Red Heat is... You know, it's not even awful. There's nothing super dumb or embarrassing about it, but it's such an average action movie that it becomes boring. And it's so weird, they have Jim Belushi in the movie, and it's not a comedy. Jim Belushi does fine, by the way, but it's such an average, forgettable action movie. Arnold was smart, realizing he needed something other than these basic action movies, Otherwise, the public would eventually get tired of him. But closer to the release date of Twins, which was December 9th. On December 1st, there was the first ever World AIDS Day to bring awareness and education to that disease. 
The world wasn't doing nearly enough to combat it, but consider that when I covered Stripes in 1981, that was the same time five men in Los Angeles were reported to have a new, rare kind of pneumonia. Doctors would later realize those were the first publicly reported cases of what was HIV. By the end of the decade, things weren't good, but there was a World AIDS Day bringing awareness. On December 2nd, the comedy The Naked Gun was released, starring Leslie Nielsen. I like that movie. In very personal news to the Reitmans, this movie debuted on December 9th, 1988. Two days later, on December 11th, Ivan and Genevieve's youngest daughter, Caroline, was born. I like that. That's a great way to celebrate another successful movie. She's the Reitman's youngest. In fact, we'll be seeing the older kids, Jason and Catherine Reitman, in their first acting roles in this movie. On December 20th, the movie Working Girl was released, co-starring Sigourney Weaver. I should watch it someday. I haven't seen that one. that you can get from Street Fighter to Avatar? Or that it's just a quick detour from the collector to Electra? Join us on Filmstrips, the podcast that explores all the connections you never knew existed. Each episode, David and I throw a brand new film under the microscope. Maybe it's a musical. Maybe it's a monster movie. Maybe it's terrible. The only rule is that it has to connect to the episode before. So join us each week for a brand new episode available on iTunes, Podomatic, or wherever free podcasts are sold. Get yourself a shotgun seat as we take a long, strange trip through the movies. Twins This Week is brought to you by Diego Jordan. You're familiar with Diego. He drew the right man for the job logo, and he's even drawn Ghostbusters comics. Of late, he's especially been into making activity books for children and adults, like giant book of games and puzzles for smart kids. Also, brain-boosting puzzles. Everyone, Diego has won awards for his puzzle books. Also, trivia books like The Astonishing Bathroom Reader. So thank you, Diego Jordan. And everyone, please consider looking online at some booksellers. I'm not going to say their names, but go type Diego Jordan, that's J-O-U-R-D-A-N, into a book search and see if there's something you like by my pal Diego Jordan. There is less history to talk about with twins. I mean, there aren't multiple books about it. No toys. Though I guess you could always take a Terminator toy and you're halfway there. Just call him Julius. Let's briefly talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger before we get into the story of him signing on to this film, because the significance of this movie is mostly related to his acting career. Born in Austria in 1947, he trained as a bodybuilder and started winning awards in Europe and London. He moved to Los Angeles in 1968, at the age of 21, and became famous for competing in the Mr. Olympia bodybuilding contest. He placed second in 1969, then he won every year from 1970 to 75, then again in 1980. Ha- and doing that in 1980 was entirely because he knew he was getting into great shape again for filming Conan the Barbarian, then decided he might as well put all that work to winning another contest. But, uh, that 1980 contest might not have been a clean, impartial win, by the way. But you can research the 1980 Mr. Olympia contest yourself. It's rather controversial. But let's back up and go back to the late 60s. 
Arnold was in his 20s, bodybuilding in LA at Gold's Gym, and had little money. But I love this story. He and Italian bodybuilder Franco Colombo formed a bricklaying business. Rather than go cheap, they knew some LA millionaires would hire them if they were artisan European bricklayers. And they charged extra for it. But Arnold always laughs about this, because there wasn't anything special about their bricks, or the way they built anything. But they were so popular... Arnold and Franco hired all these other European bodybuilders and athletes they knew. So you'd have all these muscular men, all with different European accents, working on rich people's places. Makes you feel special, knowing the brick path in your yard was done by all these buff Europeans. By the way, relevant to our interests, Norbert Group and his father, Richard, were among this expatriate set of European bodybuilders living in California. Arnold would see Norbert and Richard on the beach, in gyms, and there's photographs of them together. Not familiar with Norbert Group? He went by the more pretentious stage name Wilhelm von Homburg. He's the German actor playing Vigo, the Carpathian, in Ghostbusters 2. Of course he's also one of the henchmen in Die Hard. Also, Norbert Group was a real, horrible human being. But we will stay on topic. You can Google him yourself. That's Norbert Group. Arnold was living in L.A., had a successful business, and most important to him was winning bodybuilding awards. He knew that whole time he wanted to parlay that into an acting career. He was in bad movies where he was dubbed. He was in Pumping Iron and The Comeback, which made him an even bigger star to anyone interested in bodybuilding. But Conan the Barbarian in 1982 is what made him famous to most of the general public. Was Arnold a good actor? Eh, that's really besides the point. He had the physique, and he was becoming a real star. And then, of course, Terminator was the perfect role for him, intimidating and not requiring a lot of talking. But even his famous line, I'll be back, gave him trouble. That was difficult for him to say back then. And that's the kind of action star he was, in Commando, Predator, The Running Man, which is a cult classic today, but The Running Man didn't actually do very well in theaters back at the time. If I was doing a TV or Netflix biography, this is the point where I'd probably say, in a very grim voice, Arnold had successful movies, but now he was 40 years old and couldn't rely on his youthful physique anymore. If he was going to save his acting career, he would need to pivot. But would this gamble pay off? And then we'd go to commercial. Bah. My point is, a more sensational TV biography would talk like that, right? The truth of the matter is... Arnold's career was going great, and would continue to be great. Everyone still remembered him as the Terminator, and Predator had been a huge hit in 87. Yeah, he also had movies that only did okay, like Red Heat, but his career was going fine, and he and Maria Shriver had just married in 1986. But it is true that he probably needed to move away from straight action movies someday. The rise of old man action movies your Takens and Expendables, hadn't arrived yet. So the public was probably going to get bored with Arnold completely at some point if he just remained this hulking brute, and he wasn't about to act in serious dramatic roles. That just left comedy, something Arnold wanted to do, but nobody was giving him a chance. In 2015, Arnold Schwarzenegger went on Howard Stern's show and talked briefly about the production of Twins. He was at a social event chatting with Ivan Reitman and Robin Williams, and both of them were cracking up at how funny Arnold was. 
They say, Arnold, you should be in comedies. You should be doing that. And he says, I know, but people will only let me do action movies. Sorry, I'm going to do bad Arnold impressions all this episode. So Ivan says he'll come up with a comedy or something for Arnold. Bobby Wygant interviewed Ivan Reitman in 1988. After that social meeting with Arnold and Robin Williams, Ivan says he saw Danny DeVito a few days later, which got his brain turning about the possibility of putting these two very different guys together. Oh, and remember, Danny DeVito made a cameo in the Ghostbusters music video. It sounds like Ivan knew Danny socially for some time by 1988, but I wish I knew the context of how they first met. Anyway, soon after talking to Arnold and Danny, English screenwriters William Davies and William Osborne were telling Ivan a story about a genetic experiment where one twin brother came out, you know, almost superhuman like Arnold, while the other was most definitely not. I can't find out if the two Williams were looking at some actual example, or if this was just their own original idea. Regardless, Ivan had the perfect actors for this idea now, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, and had the two Williams write up a treatment. Then Ivan, Danny DeVito, and Arnold Schwarzenegger all had lunch together, and Arnold was so excited he signed a napkin, agreeing to twins before there was a real contract written up. I don't know if Danny DeVito signed a napkin as well, but at the very least, he quickly signed on for real. And regarding their business deals, Twins was one of the most successful deals for these three men up until that time. Because Reitman, Schwarzenegger, and DeVito were getting cuts off the gross, something Mike Ovitz had famously arranged for Reitman and friends on Ghostbusters, but because of this deal, this was Ivan's second biggest payday to date, after Ghostbusters. But it was actually Arnold's biggest. That's kind of funny. This movie didn't have as many big action set pieces, it was physically less demanding, yet twins earned Arnold more money than, say, Terminator or Predator had. I'm guessing Arnold has earned bigger paychecks since twins. William Davies and William Osborne wrote the first draft, and then, as it so often happens in Hollywood, the script went to another set of writers to be worked on some more. The new team made sense because their credits are almost entirely on projects related to Ivan Reitman's friends. New writers to the project, Timothy Harris and Herschel Weingrad, co-wrote Trading Places, the Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd movie. They wrote Brewster's Millions, starring Richard Pryor with John Candy supporting. And now Twins. Later they'd co-write My Stepmother is an Alien, Kindergarten Cop for Reitman again, and even the original Space Jam. Remember, Ivan Reitman produced Space Jam. The script was written to everyone's satisfaction. Oh, here's probably the best fact, or the best Easter egg related to this movie. Arnold plays Julius Benedict, and Danny DeVito plays Vincent Benedict. Oddly enough, all of those names are saints. St. Julius, St. Vincent, and St. Benedict. But okay, okay, that's not the fun fact. Later, in 1994, DeVito was an executive producer for Quentin Tarantino's movie, Pulp Fiction. What are the names for Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta's characters? Jules and Vincent. Ah, that's right. The two hitmen in Pulp Fiction are actually named after the characters and twins. I have to think someone, maybe executive producer Danny DeVito, maybe Quentin Tarantino himself, but someone came up with that little reference because John Travolta married Kelly Preston, one of the girlfriends in this movie. That's the other little connection. Okay, a few other things to talk about. 
Composer Elmer Bernstein and Ivan Reitman have parted ways. Composing for twins was the Frenchman Georges Delarue. He had been working since the 50s, and I must admit for a lot of movies I'm totally unfamiliar with. But also with him was the American composer Randy Edelman. Prior to this, Edelman had written the MacGyver theme for television. That's different. But Randy Edelman would be Reitman's new composer for several years going forward. Ghostbusters 2, Kindergarten Cop, Beethoven, produced by Reitman. Edelman also composed for The Mask, Billy Madison, lots of stuff. My very final thing before we get to the movie. This movie is set in Los Angeles, before they go on a road trip to New Mexico and Texas. I get it, I get it. LA is just where the film industry is. But I also want to say... I think Ivan Reitman, at age 42, had completed his transformation to entirely being an L.A. resident now. He had done Canadian films, Cannibal Girls and Meatballs, if you don't remember, but he had done Canadian films because that's where he was in Ontario. Ghostbusters was set in New York. Yeah, to get a jaded, big-city reaction to the supernatural, but honestly, part of it was also because so many of the SNL and National Lampoon people involved had been living and working together in New York. Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray had been working at SNL there, and Ivan had produced the National Lampoon stage show there. In a way, Ghostbusters was almost a capper to Dan and Bill's time at SNL. A bit of a send-off to the city, really. And then Legal Eagles was set in New York. Which is kind of a holdover from the Ghostbusters production, going through some of the same motions for exterior shots, then moving to L.A. for interiors. But it was also Mike Ovitz's insistence that New York is a great city for art. For being a man living and working in L.A., Ovitz is one of those guys who makes it a big thing that New York is more culturally important, especially in the art world. I'm beating around the bush. Yeah, why keep flying across the country to film in New York? L.A. was everybody's home base now. And as we'll see... Ivan is even more focused on his family than he has been in the past few years, so it made sense to have Twins start out as a very L.A.-centric movie. Everyone, go grab your popcorn. Get your family members into the room. Let's all watch Twins together.
I'm going to talk about the premise of this movie in a moment, but first I want to talk about the opening scene. We see a secret facility, which honestly looks like a prison hallway before we reach a lab. Scientists are working, and men are undergoing physical tests. Then we see the mother for the movie, Mary Ann Benedict. Just for this scene, she's played by Heather Graham. You've seen Heather Graham and stuff. She has blonde hair and big eyes. She was on Twin Peaks. She's in Boogie Nights and Austin Powers 2 and Bowfinger. Oh, she's in the first and third Hangover movie, which were produced by Ivan's Canadian pal, Dan Goldberg. So yeah, Heather Graham has a non-speaking, uncredited role right at the start of the movie. Also, 33 years have passed since Twins, basically the same amount of time that passes in the movie, from the twins being born to them being 35-year-old adults. When we do meet Mary Ann Benedict again, she's played by a good-looking but older woman. My point, my point. In real life, 30-plus years have passed since twins, and Heather Graham looks exactly the same. It's funny to me how wrong this movie got about what future Heather Graham would look like. I want there to be a scene where Danny DeVito meets his mom when she's older and go, Oh no, our mom is hot. A diversion there. So, a science lab. Heather Graham and a group of men are there. Some scientists and some... Fathers. We'll get into that. <laughs> and I can't help but be disappointed for all the women in the audience. Most of the dads look like regular dudes. In fact, most of them are even on the older side, which I'm afraid increases the chance for genetic problems for the fetus. There's like one handsome older guy there. You see the limitations of men's minds on display here, of Ivan and his pals. Want to create a great baby? Well, the mom has to be hot. But the dads? Whatever, they can be bald and not very sexy or impressive at all. In the scene, I also like it that Heather Graham nervously puts on her hat then immediately takes it off again. It's funny. Anyway, the mother, fathers, and scientists take a photo together. Joe Medjuk is the one taking the photograph. Cut to two babies, obviously not newborns. Ha. And one is obviously many months older than the smaller baby. Oh yeah, genes play a big part here. That are just, you know, months of difference in age. Holy cow, how long was the mom in labor for? Okay, that's all the opening scene. That photograph is going to matter later. In the meantime, let's hear a clip and talk about the entire premise of this movie. The kindly scientist we'll hear is English actor Tony Jay, only doing a German or Austrian accent to try to explain Arnold's accent later. Tony Jay has performed on stage and screen, but let's face it, the most amazing thing about his performances was his voice. He's the evil man running the asylum in Disney's Beauty and the Beast, and he played Judge Frollo in Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame. You know, the pious man who has the hots for Esmeralda and has to sing a whole song about it. Everyone, Tony J is Megabyte from Reboot. Why, yes, it is. Young Enzo Matrix, home from the games. My, how you've grown. And such toys. Does your sister know you're playing with them? Where's that annoying chatter of yours? Mega breath this and mega bath that. Why don't you put that gun away, boy, and try fighting like a real sprite? Tony J had this amazing voice, so it's funny that he just looked like this nice, ordinary man. 
Anyway, here's the opening narration. I really wanted you to hear the following. On his 35th birthday, I decided to tell Julius Benedict the truth about himself. Julius already knew that he was the product of a scientific experiment conducted by the American government. A top secret experiment designed to produce a physically, mentally and spiritually advanced human being. He knew that unlike other little boys, he had not one, but six fathers. All very distinguished men, especially chosen for their genetic excellence. And, of course, he knew about Mary Ann Benedict. The remarkable young woman who was selected to be his mother. tragic knowledge that his mother died while giving birth to him. Now what Julius did not know, not until this very moment, was that about a minute after he was born, his mother gave birth to another baby boy. So much to unpack here. First off, a German or maybe Austrian scientist performing eugenics experiments just after World War II? This movie doesn't want to get into it, but realistically, he's totally an ex-Nazi, right? I know Operation Paperclip actually focused on rocket specialists, not those incredibly evil doctors like Mengele, but that's totally who this guy would be, right? I already find this movie weird. Okay, okay, maybe the accent is just an unfortunate byproduct of needing to explain Arnold's English. Never mind that America also has a terrible history with eugenics. Okay, okay, perfect, giant, white, Austrian man, fine, we're doing that kind of plot for this movie. Now let's talk about the weird science to this. Our boys, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, supposedly have six fathers instead of just one. If you've you know, taken high school biology, you know this is impossible. A human zygote is formed from one egg and one sperm. I know, I know, I'm sorry. This movie is actually too dumb for me to think critically about this. But on the other hand, that is the challenge I've set for myself on this podcast. So let's talk about it. A couple of times during the movie, Danny DeVito will talk about their mom being fertilized by, as he calls it, a milkshake. Arnold will also repeatedly say, as a joke for the audience, that they are not identical twins, which, you know, is pretty obvious looking at them. Taking those two facts together, the milkshake idea, and that they're not identical, I mean, realistically what's happening is called superfecundation. Superfecundation is a rare but totally natural occurrence when two separate eggs are fertilized. Often that would result in non-identical 
or fraternal twins, if the twins have the same father. Superfecundation is the exact same principle, except if more than one man is involved, the babies can be twins, but also have different fathers. They are half-brothers, but they happen to be born at the same time. Following me, everyone? So we're talking multiple sexual partners, two fertilized eggs, a woman could potentially give birth to twins, but they are also half-brothers. That's called superfecundation. That honestly explains perfectly what's going on in this movie. Arnold's character got that big strapping dad in the photograph, and Danny's character got one of the shorter bald guys. For being a super-secret American, and kinda Nazi, experiment, this ain't exactly rocket science. That joke, get it? It's not rocket science, it's biology instead, but also with Nazis. So it's funny that this experiment is also so incredibly stupid. You don't fertilize an egg with more than one sperm, and you don't create a superhuman this way. From this talk here, and further talks with a scientist later in the movie, it's actually laughable because it seems like the scientists don't understand how reproduction works. So that's what's probably really happening. A milkshake and superfecundation. Alternatively, fine, fine. Maybe we're supposed to understand there was some genetic editing going on, somehow combining the DNA of the men, but nobody ever talks in the movie like this. Everyone sure does explain, badly, the first scenario with the milkshake that I just described. Besides, no version of this origin makes sense, because a scientist later still makes the case that one twin comes out as Captain America, while the other one has to be wimpy, original brand Steve Rogers. Okay, the movie is magic, that's what I'm saying. It's all magic. And that's fine, honestly. This premise just exists to have gags about Schwarzenegger and DeVito being unlikely twins. I guess... The only thing that bothers me about it is the movie will occasionally act like this origin matters, that it's a mysterious plot detail that the boys will need to unravel, but anytime they reveal anything about their conception, it's just nonsense. The setup to this movie doesn't make sense, so it's weird anytime the story wants it to be important. We're all up to speed? Okay, we're going to get this plot moving, which by the way, also does not make sense. Hey. Why did Dr. Tony J. decide to tell his adopted son, Julius Benedict, that's Schwarzenegger, why did he tell Julius about his twin brother on Julius's 35th birthday? That's weird. Usually in stories, kids are told their dark family secrets when they're 16 or 18 or something. Wait a second. Why did he keep the brother a secret at all? Wait, why does Tony J. have Julius all alone on a private island? The U.S. government wanted to give birth to a Captain America, right? Listen, if they invested money on this project, they'd keep Julius around. Hopefully not in a secret facility or anything, but they'd want to observe how he grew up. But Tony J. raised Julius on an island. And by the way, Tony J.'s doctor is treated as a good guy in this film, when all the facts lead to the contrary. This movie is just starting up, and already it's so weird. Wait. Is this island off the coast of South America? Oh my god, he is a Nazi. Oh no, this movie. It's about a Nazi scientist working for the Americans. Ugh. Okay, okay, I'll stop. But really, they just want this premise, I guess. Julius looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's educated in multiple disciplines and is a super nice guy to boot. And now he knows that he has a twin brother. 
So he's going to row a boat to another island, then catch a flight to Los Angeles. I do love the gag with the boat. There's a motor hidden underneath, so it's moving super fast, and Arnold, or someone at a distance, is rowing, and it just looks like they're going superhumanly fast by rowing. You'd imagine Arnold really could just row 30-plus miles across the ocean and not get tired. We have our premise now, everybody. It might be shaky. It might be questionable. But we're on our way. Cut to Los Angeles and Danny DeVito as Vincent. He's in bed with a woman when you hear another man's voice say, Honey, I'm home! So Vincent sneaks out the window. And look it. We all love Danny DeVito, but I love it that he's this successful womanizer. A joke in this movie is that this balding guy who's four foot ten is having affairs with multiple women. Maybe it's his car, a red 1987 Mustang convertible. A running gag in this movie is that he's always getting parking tickets and tossing them away. Come to think of it, after siblings showing up, most of this movie revolves around cars. Stealing cars, learning to drive cars... Parking tickets for cars. Just wait, you'll see. It's a very car-centric movie. Vince rolls up to the two leading ladies of the film, playing sisters. Get it? Of course they're playing sisters in this movie. First we have Chloe Webb, playing Vincent's main squeeze, Linda. She looked familiar to me, but I was trying to remember where I'd seen her before. Sid and Nancy, guest spots on China Beach, judging Amy. Nothing was ringing a bell for me. Oh, of course. Okay, but I think my other guest may disagree with you. Elaine, now you had another date in mind. According to my source, the end of the world will be on February 14th in the year 2016. Ivan liked Chloe Webb so much here, she cameos next year in Ghostbusters 2. She's one of the guests on Venkman's World of the Psychic. Her alien had a room at the Holiday Inn in Paramus, New Jersey. So it's fun seeing Chloe Webb here. Her sister, Marnie, is played by Kelly Preston, looking super cute. I haven't seen a lot of her work either. Aw. She married John Travolta a few years later in 1991, and they had three children together. One of their sons, Jet, suffered from Kawasaki disease. He had seizures and other complications throughout his life and died when he was 16 in 2009. Kelly Preston would later develop cancer and died in July of 2020. Our plot. Vincent starts charming Chloe Webb, so Linda. And it's cute and silly that she's head over heels for this cad, who is again less than five feet tall. The sister, Marnie, makes it clear she hates his guts. A mob collector comes in, asking for Vincent. We learn that Vince owes a mob family $20,000. Oh, and that family? The Klain brothers. Get it? More siblings in this movie. This head mob brother here is played by Maury Chaikin. I like seeing this. In the past, I've spoken a lot about Canadians getting their start in Canada and moving down to the States. Maury Chaikin was born in New York, but spent most of his adult life in Canada. I see an Anne of Green Gables thing. Always a requirement for Canadian actors. Sharon, Lois, and Bram? That's cute. But he still did American productions like this one and is in My Cousin Vinny. Dances with Wolves, and especially a 2000s TV show playing the detective Nero Wolf, which he's perfect for. Maury Chicken died in Toronto in 2010. But I love it, this American who moved to Canada and acted in both countries. So a mob family is after Vincent Benedict. Got it. 
Julius has made it to L.A., where he wears a suit jacket but shorts, making him look like a complete goober. There's a Simpsons joke once where Rainier Wolfcastle plays this giant hulking nerd with the tagline, Geeks shall inherit the earth. I think they partially got that joke from here, from Arnold being this poorly dressed dweeb. I love that even this is a joke, just the very idea of, can you imagine statuesque, tough guy Arnold Schwarzenegger? But if he's dressed like a dork and smiled a lot? So yeah, he goes around and gawks at LA. There's a cute moment where he and Vincent are both standing outside Grauman's theater, and they scratch their butts the same way. Ah, uh, like ships passing in the night. The movie playing at Grauman's is Willow. It makes sense. Willow debuted May 20th of 88, so this was filmed either in late May or June. Okay, this doesn't speak super highly of the film, but this is probably the funniest moment. Arnold passes by a giant poster for Rambo 3, which also came out in late May. Julius looks at Sylvester Stallone's muscles, gives a quick feel of his own bicep, then dismisses the poster like, what's the big deal? I've got bigger muscles. So that's the best joke as far as I'm concerned. I can never tell how real the supposed feud between Schwarzenegger and Stallone used to be. Stallone says that it was real for a time, but who knows, and for how long. By the way, to give you a hint, in the end credits, Stallone is given a special thank you. This production had to ask him so they could do this joke, and Stallone said yes. That gives you an idea of their supposed feud. We find out how Vince makes money. He goes to a parking garage, and suddenly Mr. Sunglasses himself, David Caruso, is there working the gate. Ha, yeah, the detective from CSI Miami. I guess he was a career criminal before going straight, because here he tells Vince where the nicest cars are in the parking garage. Presumably, David Caruso would get a cut from what Vince makes, but we don't see this. Vince then sells the car to a slimy reseller, but only gets $4,000. Oh, and real quick, the shooting locations aren't as well documented online as, say, the locations in Ghostbusters, of course. We'll be returning to this parking garage a lot, and it's in Glendale, California. It's off North Brand Boulevard, just east of the northern end of Griffith Park. That means it's also just east of DreamWorks Animation. The next scene is funny enough, though it takes too long to set up. At night, a guy starts chatting up Julius, obviously intending to scam or rob him. Suddenly, his partner rides up on a motorbike, grabbing Julius's suitcases. But you can see this gag coming. The thief grabs the suitcase, which Julius is still holding, and rather than rip it out of his hands, Julius is just so strong that the thief comes to a dead stop and falls off his bike. And Julius is such a sweet goober about all of this. Oh my gosh, are you hurt? Not realizing these guys were robbing him. <laughs> he says, the pavement was his enemy. That same night, Vince's parking tickets catch up to him, and the cops arrest him for his outstanding fines. See, this movie is starting to revolve around cars. The next day, Julius visits the orphanage where Vince grew up, St. Charlotte's. I looked around online, and I don't think there is a St. Charlotte. Of course, there's no St. Charlotte orphanage, but I mean there's no actual saint who's a Charlotte. Vince is shown around by a nun, played by Canadian actress Frances Bay. 
Man, she got her start on CBC Radio before World War II. But we all probably remember her for playing Little Old Ladies. She's in some of the Karate Kid movies. She's in Twin Peaks and Happy Gilmore. I have a favorite role by Frances Bay, though. On Seinfeld, the little old lady with the marble rye. She's who Jerry steals from. Give me that rye. Shut up, you old bag. Ah, she even comes back in the final episode just to testify that this jerk stole bread from this old woman. So that's Frances Bay, and she's playing a nun here. Frances Bay died in 2011. The jokes about Vince's time in the orphanage are darkly funny. Julius is so cheery. If there was a fire, I'd save all the other children. Francis Bay goes, The only time we had a fire, Vincent started it. We also learn Vince stole his own records, and all that's left is an old photograph of himself with a nun. Tell me a little bit about Vincent. Was he a great athlete? Was he interested in chess and poetry? I'm certain God had a purpose when he created Vincent Benedict, but it had nothing to do with chess or poetry. Oh. Oh, Odd? Contents of his files are missing. That is Vince? He looks so happy. He should. Sister Maria, his biology teacher. Oh, I always liked biology. So did Vincent. He disgraced Sister Maria, who had to leave the order. Then he stole all the money from the library fund and ran away. But I must find my brother. You know where he might be. Jail. A man of his character can only be in jail. <laughs> You're full of goodness, Julius. I pray you'd never find him. Sure enough, Julius is able to find Vincent in jail. First he can't believe that Danny DeVito behind the glass can be his brother... But then he's all smiles, and there's a gag that he's too excited and talks to him before picking up the phone receivers, separating them. Vince doesn't believe Julius' story, but tells Julius to bail him out, which Julius then does. When they get outside, the air quotes, jail, it sure looks like the exterior of a soundstage building. Okay, there's no point in arguing the logic in this movie. The whole premise doesn't really add up, but I will say, they go to Vince's car, and after Julius has made it clear that he wants to help Vince, even financially, Vince is all too happy to drive off without him. It's pretty stupid. Even if you don't believe this guy's story, you'd think scheming Vincent would think of ways to take advantage of this giant. Oh well, he drives off instead. A new scene with new characters. A couple of guys roll up in a Cadillac to the parking garage and David Caruso is eyeing to have the car stolen later. I'm so glad David Caruso gave up his life of crime. But the guys in the Cadillac are weird. They wear gloves and make sure to wipe off any fingerprints before they leave. Vincent goes to his office. Wait, he has an office? Apparently so, and he bills himself as a Hollywood agent but also an importer-exporter and seller of wholesale patio furniture. That's a fun gag. It's maybe the most stereotypical scene outside his office, though. Guys are carting away his furniture. Where are you guys taking my stuff? Hey, we're movie repo guys. You're six months behind, bub. Hey! Inside Vince's office, there's a poster of the Road Warriors, the wrestling tag team. I wonder if someone on the production was friends with those guys but it's an okay gag that maybe his biggest stars are some regional wrestlers. 
they hadn't even been with the WWF yet by 88. There's another poster of a guy in front of an American flag, but the camera never gets high enough to see any words. I can't tell who's supposed to be on that poster. It's cute. Vince has a secretary. I'm starting to see how he could have kept costs down. But he has a secretary played by Canadian actress Rosemary Dunsmore. Guess what, everyone? Her first acting credits were appearing on The Littlest Hobo. Twice! She's been on Anne of Green Gables shows, MacGyver, Murdoch Mysteries, ooh, my mom's favorite show, and Paw Patrol. Hey, that's my kid's favorite show. Maybe most interestingly, she played in a movie with Schwarzenegger again soon after this. She's Dr. Lull in Total Recall. She's the doctor asking Arnold questions, trying to give him his dream vacation. Ha, that's very neat that she's in Twins and Total Recall. Rosemary Dunsmore gives Vince a gift of Aqua Velva, which he throws away as soon as she's gone. I had to look it up. Aqua Velva is an old brand of aftershave, with the gag that most baby boomers think of it as being from their parents' or grandparents' brand. Huh. Their attitude must have put a dent in its image, because I was totally unfamiliar with Aqua Velva. Oh, and I like a moment where the phone rings, and she kneels down like it's totally normal to keep answering the phone, even though her desk is gone. This is a fun stunt, and gag. DeVito leaves his office. We wait a beat. Then he's thrown back through the glass door. One of the loan sharks is here to collect, and starts manhandling Vince. This Klain brother is played by stuntman David Efron. He was doing stunts in Predator. He'd be in Dark Man and Wayne's World, another 48 hours. I believe he retired in the 2000s. So this Klain brother starts beating up Vince, but brother Julius shows up. It's cute. Julius is saying, you negotiate first. Only resort to violence as a last tactic. But this guy can't be reasoned with, so Julius tosses him into the elevator. Vincent finally realizes it would be good to have a hulking brother around to protect him, something he should have realized a few scenes ago. Julius also sets up a, not very funny, running gag where he has rules for dealing in crisis situations, but it's only funny here when he sets up that he'd rather be a pacifist. I love it when you hit people, George. Oh! Ah. <laughs> That's great. Actually, I hate violence. But you're so good at it. Listen, I got an idea. We should go into business together. You could be a boxer, I could be a manager. Oh, I don't think I could fight for money. No problem. You do all the fighting, I'll keep all the money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really worried about you, Vincent. How much money do you owe? Now don't lie to me. We are twins. I can feel your pain. Why do you keep saying that? We're not twins. We're not brothers. We're nothing. Twenty thousand. Do this morning. I'm with you. I won't let anyone harm you, okay? Yeah, well, you're a good guy, Julius. Now hang on to your seat. Oh! 
the bros are finally together. Immediately afterwards, Vincent starts lying to his brother that he needs to go pick up a friend's car. Of course, what he's really doing is going off to steal the Cadillac in the parking garage. They get over there, and it's kind of cute. Vincent feigns innocence that he doesn't have his friend's car keys, but he says this car is supposed to be auctioned off for handicapped children. Pure-hearted Julius suggests that they better break into the car then. Well, if you say so, Julius. Of course, Vince unlocks it easily, but a car alarm sounds off. Julius picks up the back end of the car, then sets it down again. He says that when car alarms sense that the car is being towed away, so when it's at an angle, the alarm switches off. The idea that Julius can lift up a car is even more impressive when we discover later that there's something very heavy in the back. Ha, I do like it. On the internet, the number one piece of trivia, the biggest question about this movie, is whether Arnold actually lifted the back end of that car. The answer is no. Notice we never see the front of the car when it's lifted at an angle. Vincent is off to sell the stolen car, but he needs Julius to drive his red Mustang. But Julius has never driven a car in his life. So there's lots of gags of him learning, pressing the gas and brake pedal at the same time. Here's me, the professor. Notice here that Julius is wearing Vincent's hat. Now that Julius is imitating his little bro and helping to steal a car, he's got a visual symbol of Vincent on him. He's morally compromised, even if he doesn't realize he's aiding in a theft. And remember, I said so much of this movie's plot revolves around cars, and whether they're stolen or not, this will play into the finale as well. The brothers speak to each other on car phones, and that in itself is also a joke. Telephones? In cars? LA is such a crazy city. What's next? A phone in your camera? The best stunt in the movie comes up. Because Julius is such a crazy driver, for no real reason at all, he accidentally pops the car, so it's just driving on the two passenger wheels. It's a neat trick. I assume they managed it by weighing down the passenger side of the car. I wonder if they were watching the James Bond film Diamonds Are Forever when they did this shot. That's probably the most famous movie example of popping two car wheels like that. Diamonds Are Forever. Huh. Interestingly enough, when I covered the real Ghostbusters episode Ghosts Are Us, Peter does a similar thing with Ecto-1. A coincidence. When you see the car come down, the airbags go off. They cut away from that quickly, hoping you don't notice. To Arnold is inside the car, and the airbags are not deployed. We cut to a supermarket, which is honestly just here to remind us that the sisters exist. Arnold awkwardly runs into Marnie, that's Kelly Preston, and they're both smitten with each other. I mean, Arnold is a big, strapping guy, so I guess that gets Marnie's attention, even if she hears that this is the brother of the guy she hates. Similar to the gags of Arnold looking slack-jawed at downtown L.A., now his eyes bug out and he acts like a teenage boy around a pretty girl, even though he's a giant 40-year-old man. The bros head to Vincent's house. I like this gag a lot, though you need to see it more clearly in later shots. Vince has all this lawn furniture inside his home, including chairs all stacked up and umbrellas leaning against walls. Remember, in addition to being an agent, he's a patio furniture wholesaler. Ah. I like the colors of the furniture, too. My parents had stuff kind of similar to this in the early 90s. Vincent also has a cat named Julius. What are the odds? <laughs> that establishes a nice connection, but it doesn't make a lot of sense considering the doctor or someone named the boys, not the boys themselves. 
And despite the difference, the two men even sit down to eat the same way, smell their food the same way. Ah, uh, we're not so different, you and I. Notice that Vince is drinking a beer while Julius has milk. Hey, if you watch Pumping Iron, people asked Arnold if he drinks milk, and he says no. Eh. Anyway, Julius explains their backstory. The secret lab, them being separated... Their mom is supposedly dead, if you do not remember that detail. Vincent, quite rightly, points out how this story doesn't make any damn sense. In probably the most emotionally realistic scene in the film, he says that all orphans want to believe some fantasy like this, that their parents didn't mean to give them up, and that they still have some family members out there desperately searching for them. Someday there will be a Little Orphan Annie, Daddy Warbuck-style reunion. But according to Vince... The truth is their mom gave them up. Vincent even stole his own records and discovered his mom did not die in childbirth. That's what Julius believes, by the way. But with Vincent knowing their mom didn't want them, he's not interested in meeting her or tracking down their supposed father or fathers or whatever it is that Julius believes. The plot thickens on that mysterious Cadillac that Vincent stole. A man named Webster shows up to the parking garage to retrieve the car only to find it gone. He goes to a fancy office and meets the two men who parked the car. We're not entirely sure what's up yet, but we can figure out Webster was hired by the men to deliver the car, and anything the car might contain, to a location in Texas. Webster is angry that it sounds like he's been double-crossed, so he kills the two men. I should talk about the man playing the villain, Webster. He's character actor Marshall Bell. Huh? He's in Total Recall as well. He plays George. What, you don't remember the character George in Total Recall? <laughs> you might remember him as the human with Kuato growing out of his body. Yeah, that guy with the gross puppet. But Marshall Bell has had other memorable roles. Uh, he's the coach in Nightmare on Elm Street 2? Yeah, that coach. the shower. He's the cowardly general towards the end of Starship Troopers, and here he's the real villain of Twins. Oh, by the way, not to insult Marshall Bell, but even he would admit his wife is a bigger deal in Hollywood than he is. His wife is costume designer Milena Cananero, and she's won multiple Oscars for costumes. Hell, she started out working for Stanley Kubrick on A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, and The Shining. Also, she did the costumes in Dick Tracy. Awesome. But yes, this is her husband, Marshall Bell, playing the bad guy, Webster. You can tell he's the most villainous character in the movie because he's like the one guy who doesn't have a sibling in this movie. Maybe if he had a brother to love him, he wouldn't be so darn evil here. Oh, shooting locations again. This isn't really conveyed by the movie at all, but it makes a lot of sense. According to the YouTube channel of Nick P. Was Here, the parking garage is in Glendale, just east of Griffith Park. It's off North Brand Boulevard. The building where the two executives work, where Webster just killed those guys, is one of the office buildings surrounding the parking complex. So it makes sense. The movie production didn't need to move far at all to film the garage and this short office content. Anyway, we catch up with Julius again. 
While Vincent isn't interested in family, Julius is. He's still determined to track down their parents. He goes to an address found in Vincent's file and goes to a very nice house. Hey, there are some kids out front. Yes, the big cameos in the movie, everybody. Jason Reitman in his first acting role. He was around 11 years old when filming this. And his sister Catherine Reitman is there as well, and she's around 7. We'll be seeing those kids in future Ivan Reitman movies. See, this movie really is all about family. But oh, I was complaining about things not making sense. Julius has the address for where his mom lived, but what he's done is found the home of one of his dads. Anyway, dad number whatever, dad example A, is played by Western actor Hugh O'Brien. He's probably famous for playing Wyatt Earp in the 50s for television, and he would play Earp again and again for projects as the decades went on. More important for the movie, he's a tall guy, and you could conceivably imagine that he might be Arnold Schwarzenegger's father. Dad and Julius speak in the dad's den, huh? and he just has photos and a big painting of Hugh O'Brien in there. I have to wonder, this interior might just be O'Brien's home. I mean, maybe. It also feels like there's a scene missing. Dad A says that he thought about marrying the guy's mother, Marianne. Oh, see, nobody says it out loud, but we're supposed to understand that Mary Ann underwent this experiment and gave birth, but then Dad A here began a relationship with her, and she even moved in with him in this house. But the movie doesn't really say that. It's just poor storytelling that you have to figure out. We also learn some new facts. See, just as Julius and Vincent had been told their mom died giving birth to them, she had been told that she had one son and that her son died. Wow, these are terrible secrets to keep from people. Do you think this movie is going to explain why there were all these multiple lies? Do you think mysteries will be solved in satisfying ways? What a silly question. I'm going to spoil it for you now. No. Just as there's no adequate explanation for their conception, no explanation for why Julius was sent to an island with Tony J. Why Vincent was left to fend for himself? There's going to be no explanation for why all the doctors involved lied to everyone, and told the mom a son had died, or the sons that their mom died. This all just happens just because. I should be more annoyed at this movie. Look, it isn't smart. It's not clever or well thought out. But unlike Legal Eagles, where there's a mystery, and the identity and motives of players involved is essential, for twins, you can tell they just did not care about this stuff. Frankly, the scene with Hugh O'Brien is almost unnecessary, not because he's bad or anything, but just because he's not going to answer any of these questions. He just gets to say, here's one of the scientists, you can find him in New Mexico. Cut to Vince in the stolen car. He finds a cassette tape, which he puts into the player on a whim. The tape plays a message from the guys who Webster just shot. There's something valuable in the trunk, and they instruct Webster to drive to Houston and call a phone number there. Vince, wanting to know what's up, calls the number in Texas. And who does he get on the line? Actor Trey Wilson, playing the ridiculously named character Beetroot McKinley. Oh man, Trey Wilson wasn't in a lot of movies, but it sounds like he almost always played the same role. A rich Texan, or Arizonan if you want to go far afield, but rich white men in charge of companies. That's who he's playing here, 
and that's the sort of man he plays in Bull Durham and Raising Arizona. That's right, if you can find better prices on unpainted furniture, then his name ain't Nathan Arizona. Yeah, it's that actor, Trey Wilson. Aw, and he died in 1989. Man, he was only 41 when he died. He looks much older than that, frankly. The plot, the plot. Vincent wants to know how much the merchandise is worth in the car, but it sure sounds like he hasn't looked in the back of the car yet. He also switches from the merchandise to talking about the car itself mid-conversation, so it's obvious he doesn't know what he's talking about. Oh well, the big point. After thinking they're discussing thousands, Vincent realizes something in the car is worth $5 million. He is excited. Well, I'm a reasonable man. Uh, how about 15? The deal is five. Five? I could do better than five here. If you can do better than five million dollars, well then, son, you take it. I'll see you in Houston. After all, fair is fair. I'll just have to find it in my heart to live with your offer. Well, good. Five million! Five million dollars! Five million dollars! Five million dollars! Five! Five million dollars! Five million dollars! Five million! Vince is ready to ditch Julius, along with the girls, but they all stop him. Hey, plot convenience, Arnold says in his thick Austrian accent. He wants to visit the scientist involved in their conception. You need to drive to Houston. Well, New Mexico is on the way there. Then the ladies show up, and Marnie is super into Julius. She tries to sneak a peek at him while he's showering, but all she gets to see is him all wet and topless. Then he says he'll get dressed, and rather than her leaving the room, you know, the way you would with someone you're not intimate with, she says she'll just turn around. Whew, Marnie has the hots for this guy. You might not even notice it, but there's a mirror partially off screen, so Marnie is even trying to sneak a peek when she turns around. I guess it's cute, but it's just too bad that this character Kelly Preston is playing has no personality other than being beautiful and having the hots for this man. We finally see what's inside the trunk of the Cadillac. It's a load of machinery and kind of looks like a jet engine. Psst, we'll later learn that this is a jet engine. It's so funny, it's super obvious that the valuable MacGuffin in this movie is a jet engine because making it cocaine would have been too sleazy and depressing. This makes it all PG. But seriously, any other movie, PG-13 and up, this would have been a trunk full of cocaine, right? By the way, a neighbor comes by, played by Dendry Taylor. She's guested on lots of stuff, and plays Mrs. Disney in Saving Mr. Banks. Anyway, anyway, she comes by just to tell Vince's girlfriend, Linda, that she shouldn't trust Vince. They've slept together, he borrowed money and didn't pay it back. The guy's a louse. I only bring this up because it doesn't amount to anything. We get it, Vincent is a sleazy guy. But if Linda is his girlfriend, 
So far, we know he's cheated on her with two other women, at least. There was some woman he was sleeping with at the start of the movie, remember? But he has a lady, yet he sleeps around. And several times in the movie, Linda just ignores this fact, and one time even tells him it doesn't bother her. Oof. It makes Linda out to be a real doormat, that she's so in love with Danny DeVito, but doesn't really care that he cheats on her. Or has any money. And she knows he's a thief, but Danny DeVito, so dreamy. But yes, not a feminist movie. The brothers and sisters hop into the car for a ride that would take a full day on the road, and that's without stopping. And the trunk is full, so everyone needs to bring their bags in the cab. Wonderful. Meanwhile, Webster threatens David Caruso looking for Vincent and the stolen Cadillac. We don't see David Caruso again, so I'm going to assume he started taking forensics classes and joined CSI in Miami. But from Caruso, Webster now has Vincent's home address. The brothers and sisters are gone on their road trip by now, but Vincent very helpfully and very stupidly left a note with enough information back when he was talking to Beetroot McKinley on the phone. Webster knows where to go in Houston now. Then the Klein brothers show up. See, this movie is all about family. Twin brothers, two sisters, brothers again. Yeah, we get it. Actor Marshall Bell proves he's just about as funny as the leads in this movie because the thugs get aggressive and he tries to be polite and say that they can all just leave the house until he's had enough and shoots the guys in the legs. He's kind of weirdly funny to me. This right here will be another dumb plot point though. You don't want these thugs to die in the movie yet Webster makes it a big point of killing anyone who can identify him. He killed the two schmucks who tried to give him the Cadillac, even when it was fairly clear they didn't actually double-cross him. He'll be killing more people as the movie goes on, yet for some reason, not the Klain brothers. There's a short montage of the car driving east. At night, Kelly Preston snuggles up to Arnold Schwarzenegger, which makes his bicep bulge and tear his shirt. I like it, that's a different sort of metaphor. The group arrives in New Mexico, and they leave the women off at a motel while the guys go to meet a scientist responsible for their conception. It's not commented on, but there's a sign saying that they're in Los Alamos. You know, like the birthplace of the nuclear bomb? Look, I know the Manhattan Project was just a bit before Operation Paperclip, but I think I'm onto something here, that this eugenics project was all World War II, Nazi-American stuff. Oh no! Speaking of which, we meet the cruddy doctor in charge of their conception, played by Israeli-American actor Nehemiah Persoff. Which, yes, yes, an Israeli actor kind of confuses my theory on this being Nazi stuff, but still. Let's talk about him. Nehemiah Persoff was born in 1919. As of 2021, he's 102 and still with us. Awesome. He's been in everything, usually on TV. Untouchables, Gilligan's Island... He's the guest star on A Twilight Zone. But to millennials, he's probably best known as Papa Mouskowitz. That's right, he's the Papa in all the American Tale movies. In fact, with those movies wrapping up in 1999, and that was one of his last roles. Guys, he's been retired from acting for 22 years now. That's Nehemiah Persoff playing this jerk of a doctor. America. 
What a place. What a place. What a place. In America, there are mouse holes in every wall. Who says? Everyone. Everyone. In America, there are breadcrumbs on every floor. You're talking nonsense. In America, you can say anything you want. But most important, and this I know for a fact, in America, there are no cats. Jerk Doctor doesn't admit to anything and tells the brothers to get lost. Julius then kicks his door down, and rather than have security try to deal with them, he goes, Okay, I guess there's no reason not to show you the secret lab we have in the basement of this very building. Wait, that scary basement and lab are in this building? Huh. They go downstairs, and oddly, Jerk Doctor says the lab and delivery room was locked up immediately following the boy's birth. I can't get a handle on this conspiracy. On the one hand, it's top secret and by the government, yet there's no follow-through or research on whether it got results they wanted. At least in Captain America, Oh no, a Nazi has killed Dr. Erskine. Now we can't make any more super soldiers. Ah. In Twins, everybody gave up after creating an Arnold Schwarzenegger, and they never thought to make any more, but they also never thought to maybe clear the stuff out of this basement? I don't get it. You came out first, of course. We weren't expecting him. This uh, must be where you made the milkshake. We weren't making milkshakes. We're making the most fully developed human the world has ever seen. But instead of just one perfect kid, Mom had the two of us. Way to go, Mom. Wrong. The embryo did split in two, but it didn't split equally. All the purity and strength went into Julius. All the crap that was left over went into what you see in the mirror every morning. Whoa, 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 you tell me I'm the crap? No, this is not true, well, Vincent. Wait a minute, Julius, I want to hear this. You tell me that I am the leftover crap, that I'm no good? He's wrong. Look at him. Are you saying that I'm a side effect? You haven't got the brain power to understand this, and I haven't got the time. Show's over. Hey, dickhead. Tell us where our mother is. Um, Whispering Pines. It's an artist colony 200 miles north of Santa Fe. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. Heh, <laughs> I'll be back. That's one of the better callbacks to that catchphrase. The Doctor is needlessly cruel, which becomes a running theme as we try to untangle the plot of their conception. But also, whatever, I've already said at the start how the multiple dad thing doesn't really make any sense. We'll talk about the science not working out at the end of the movie. This is the low point of the story. Vincent is sad to hear that he has bad genes, while Julius tells him that they're family. They belong together as a family, and if they can find their mom, they can all be together and love each other no matter what. Ha, <laughs> and it's cute. Julius says their mom will love Vince, even when you're bad, Vincent. I like all that mushy stuff. I agree with all this mushy stuff, but it's hard to take it seriously at all when this plot and the characters are so cartoonish. It just kind of washes over me now. Now, appreciating his big bro even more, 
Vincent decides he and Julius need to dress in matching 80s chic. They get white suits and practice walking like cool 80s dudes. And the crowning touch? Sunglasses. Again, I have to think this is another Terminator reference. You've seen Arnold wearing sunglasses before, but now he's a friendly, smiling guy, and he's dressed the same as Danny DeVito. There's the comedy, folks. Oh, this location. They're in Santa Fe, strutting slowly along East San Francisco Street. In the background, you can see the Santa Fe landmark, St. Francis Cathedral, dedicated in 1887. That night, the four go to a country bar, and the men dance with the ladies. It's cute. The singer in the bar is Nicolette Larson, singing I'd Die for This Dance and Let Me Be the One. Aw, she died in 1997 at the age of 45. The men and women are having a romantic night, when who shows up but the Klain family, including some in leg casts, which is funny after being shot by Webster. And they've brought their cousins in now, which is also funny. It's backup. Ha, and the cousins are named Sam and Dave. Get it? Like the duo? Soul man, hold on, I'm coming. Ah, go watch Blues Brothers. You'll get it. The goon on the right of the screen is Sven Ole Thorsen. He's from Denmark and was one of those European bodybuilding expats I was telling you about at the start of the podcast. Arnold was great about bringing him into his movies, like both of the Conans. In The Running Man, he just goes by his real name, Sven. He's a security guard you see throughout the movie, with the gag at the end that he just chooses to not fight Arnold. So here's Sven Ole Thorsen again in this bar. Oh, and I guess he's a stuntman somewhere in Ghostbusters 2. That's cool. There's this running gag where Julius talks about the rules in a crisis situation. It's not all that funny because here, what he says, prepare to have bluffs called, has no real relation to how he actually solves the problem, which is to just kick two guys and then bash the rest. One of the Klain brothers had a gun on the women, so if Julius had been any slower, people would have died. The whole setup has nothing really to do with bluffs. Hey, how did these mobsters find where Vincent was? Presumably they read the same note at the house as Webster, and learned Vincent was going to New Mexico and Texas, but they just find the group at some random bar. What are the odds, huh? Anyway, they're out of the movie now. You'd think they'd matter more, but nope. There's sort of a Star Wars cantina moment, where everyone quickly ignores the violence. Patrons just ignore that there are unconscious guys in a booth, and an injured man laid out on the dance floor. You do know you can call the cops, right? This isn't actually Star Wars. Back to the motel, where Vincent heads over to the ladies' room, so Marnie says she'll be staying with Julius. She's waiting for him to make a move, but he's too much of an innocent teen. An innocent, 200-plus-pound, 40-year-old teen. It's kind of sweet. She says the bed is too lumpy, then cuddles up with Julius on the floor. Oh yeah, he's too big and strong. Julius lays out a blanket first, but he says he always sleeps on the floor. They have sexy times off-screen, and afterwards you see her happily smoking a cigarette, and he has this giant, doofy grin on his face, with his gap in his teeth showing. I think Arnold's enjoying this broad comedy, and honestly, he is playing a teen. That's what this is. Next door, DeVito and Chloe Webb scene is cute too, with him talking about being nervous before meeting his mother. They also kind of touch on his infidelities again, which makes him extra crappy, because this woman Linda is so in love with the guy. 
The next day, the group drives to an artist retreat that was pointed out to them by the jerk doctor. I like the look of everything here, all adobe. It's very Pueblo revival architecture. Actually, this place in real life is often used as an artist retreat. It's the Mabel Dodge Luhan House in Taos, New Mexico. It's a hotel, or bed and breakfast or what have you, but when there's no pandemic, over the year they hold a lot of artists' and writers' retreats. That's neat. So this movie here is almost mimicking how it's used in real life. The Benedict boys ask someone at the gate to see Mary Ann Benedict, but the guy there tells them to buzz off, thinking they want a handout from this artist commune and charity. So the group all jumps a low wall and get into this artist retreat. A woman asks them if they broke in, and they fess up. Yeah. And try to explain the boy's case. See, this woman obviously doesn't believe them, but they in turn aren't doing the obvious thing. They're not telling the woman about the government conspiracy in their conception, which, you know, is secret enough that it could probably prove they're telling the truth. A story like the conception of these twins isn't common, so they should just mention that. Yeah, and it's also super obvious to us, the viewers, what's happening. Without giving away who she is, the boys have accidentally run into their mother, Mary Ann, played by Bonnie Bartlett. Bonnie Bartlett hasn't done a whole lot of movies. Watch for her making an appearance in Dave in a few years, everyone. But she's been all over television. She appeared on Gunsmoke, Kojak, was a recurring character on Little House on the Prairie, Saint Elsewhere, and hey, she still acts every so often, to this day, for Grey's Anatomy and Parks and Rec, and even Better Call Saul. But again, ways you'd know her, she had a recurring role as the love interest to Mr. Feeney on Boy Meets World. She's been married to Mr. Feeney's actor, William Daniels, for 70 years now, and they're both still alive and in their 90s. That's Barney Bartlett. Okay, the character. Mary Ann lies to the men, and says that the woman the men are looking for died years ago. There are just lies upon lies in this movie, often with people lying for no real reason. Vincent is angry, thinking the whole family thing Julius talked to him about is a big lie. Being the jerk that he is, he unloads everyone's bags and takes off without Julius and the women. Linda tells Julius about the valuable machine in the trunk of the car, and Julius decides to catch a quick plane over to Houston to try and use their brotherly bond... Ooh, brotherly bond to find Vince. The Houston scenes are dumb but cute. Vincent is tired while driving, will slap his face. Then Julius does the same, and you can tell he's wondering why he felt like doing that. Lots of little bits showing that they're even physically connected somehow. Maybe the best little thing, Julius spots a big car with steer horns on the front, a very Texas car. But he spots the keys in the ignition, and after waiting a beat, he steals the car. See, Vincent's sleaze has rubbed off on Julius now. We are at the end, folks. Vince drives the Cadillac to an industrial site. According to the blog, itsfilmedhere.com, dated 2011, this is a sewage treatment plant in Carson, California, so just south of downtown LA, so it's not in Texas. This is right off Highway 110. You know what? An empty industrial-looking area used for the climax? It's a very different look, but it's an awful lot like the time Reitman's production used an old brewery to film the action scene at the end of Stripes. Vincent is threatened at gunpoint, told that he's an idiot, but sure enough, 
Beetroot McKinley honors their deal and hands over $5 million. I do like it. After finishing the deal, instead of acting cool, Danny DeVito goes, Thank you! But, uh-oh, of course the bad guy is around. Webster fires two shots and kills the rich Texan Beetroot McKinley and his henchmen in their car. Which, by the way, Webster did not need to do. Webster wants the millions of dollars now, but in keeping with the idea that he kills everyone who sees him, I guess he's got to kill these men, but not the Clean brothers that other time? Oh well, inconsistencies. There's a chase scene, with Vincent clutching a briefcase full of the money and going into industrial tunnels underground. Julius shows up in his newly stolen car, guided to the site through the magic of... Brotherhood. Vincent is down a tunnel, and probably out of harm's way, when Julius shows up and startles Webster. So Webster now has Julius at gunpoint, and Vincent has an opportunity to run away with all that money, but darn it, he has to go back for his brother, and he gives up the money. It's cute. The brothers hash things out while Webster has to remind them that he's there standing with a gun. Julius talks about the third rule in a crisis situation, that sort of running gag in the movie. It doesn't mean anything, but Arnold's bugged-out eyes gesturing to a big, wily Coyote-style Acme lever to pull sure indicates something. Vincent pulls the lever, dropping a never-ending spool of metal chain on top of Webster, burying him. Huh. I'm pretty sure Webster's dead. Yo! Holy schmoly! Now there's a man with a lot on his mind. <laughs> Thanks for coming back, Vincent. We're brothers, right? We're family. That's right. Thank you, Vincent. <laughs> <laughs> a rich family. A good family. What, what, what? We're gonna return this money. No, we don't have to give it back. Yes, we, we do. Why? No, we have Why? to give it back. Why? Why? No, we have I want to point out, the action is just done, and you get that pleasant piano coming in, which I guess is perfectly fine for this movie, but that's what it is, fine and pleasant. It's not triumphant like the end of Ghostbusters, with Winston shouting, I love this town! This is quaint. It's, oh, isn't that nice? But yeah, the brothers seem to have alerted authorities to what was up, and returned the stolen jet engine to its rightful company. And that company gave them a reward for doing it. $50,000. I get that, but I'm a little shakier on them returning the millions of dollars. Julius wants them to give that back too, but that was the rich guy McKinley's money, right? Or his company's? I see returning the jet engine, but the cash is kind of like giving money back to the estate of Mr. Burns after he dies. Not only does the McKinley family and or company not really need it, McKinley willingly gave it up as part of a crime. I'm a bit fuzzier on why giving it back is the right thing. But Julia seems to be right, and doing good deeds will always result in good outcomes. Michael C. Gross has done a mock-up of USA Today, just like he did for the montage in Ghostbusters, and the story of the Benedict brothers foiling plots and returning jet engines is front-page news. Mary Ann reads this news with the photos of the two men she met. 
Now, this doesn't prove they are her kids, but I guess it shows the degree of their honesty. Plus, they really do claim to be Benedicts. Whoopsie, mom was a bit rash, telling her sons to get lost. Before we really get to the end, the movie feels the need to resolve the fact that Dr. Jerk lied to everyone, saying the boys died, the mom died. So the mom stops by to tell the guy off, then punches him very unconvincingly on screen. That's fine, but just before we say goodbye, this movie still hasn't really explained why things have happened. It just can't. And that's fine, I guess. But if the mystery doesn't make any sense and there are no explanations, I feel like you can't go around punching evil doctors, acting as if there is emotional resolution to weird things for which there is no emotional resolution. You haven't answered anything. Linda, remember that's Chloe Webb, isn't speaking to Vincent. Hey, remember how he left her without a car in New Mexico? Well, he comes back to her with lots and lots and lots of flowers. Man, Chloe Webb does a cute job in this, but her character is such a pushover. They're back together now. Second to last scene, folks. We're back at Vincent's office, the one where he was getting beaten earlier in the movie. Now they have nice furniture and a fancy sign that's lit from behind. The secretary is back, and she speaks to someone on the phone about how the Benedict Corporation is a think tank, and something like the Rand Corporation. Ha, they've moved up from selling patio furniture. The brothers are dressed the same, sitting in desks opposite each other. Yeah, they got a $50,000 reward for returning the engine, and after paying off all of Vincent's debts, they have a little over 12000 left. Huh, I wonder if they bothered paying off the Klein brothers. I mean, Julius could just keep beating those guys until they give up. No answer to that, but Julius and Vincent discuss the millions of dollars in the briefcase. Ah, uh, Vincent, don't you feel happier doing the moral thing and returning the money? Vincent goes, Oh, the $4 million? That briefcase that definitely only had $4 million? Yeah, yeah. I guess it was better return it. You're right. <laughs> it's a good joke. And why not? Again, I don't get the point of returning all of it. Though if McKinley did embezzle from his own company for that cash, wouldn't the company soon discover they're still missing money? Bah. I'm thinking more seriously about this situation than the movie warrants. Vincent kept a million bucks. Why not? And soft piano music, and the mom is there in the office. The men call her mama, and they all hug. We end at a park's little fairground, and Dr. Tony J has joined the new happy family. The women, both the mom and the two sisters, are all dressed in white. The twins, the guys, are dressed the same. They yawn in unison. For a gag that would be perfect if you could train four babies to yawn together as well. Yes, the Benedict boys and their ladies each had a set of twins. It's very cute and extremely obvious that they were going to end the movie this way. Tony J takes a photo of everyone else. See, it's like the photo at the start of the movie. I do like it. That was a sterile environment designed to merely create children. But here we have a photo of an actual family with love. That's a sweet idea. Man, I like Little Richard well enough, but I really hate the song they play at the end credits. I've been covering Ivan Reitman's filmography, of course, and I've been looking for trends 
and things that make him tick. Well, here's one. Family, particularly very young kids. Yeah, okay, Meatballs had kids in it, but you can tell he and his pals weren't especially invested in them. They were more concerned with the horny and outrageous antics of the teens and young adults. Then Stripes and Ghostbusters, which were films about young-ish men without responsibilities. For Legal Eagles, there's a divorced dad in it, but I think I made it clear it was more of a business venture than anything else. Here in Twins, you have men looking for family, and the music by Georges Delarue and Randy Edelman is sweet and pleasant, and it even ends with the men becoming dads themselves, taking on responsibility. And the Reitman kids are in the movie. And Ghostbusters 2 will feature a baby, in fact actually revolve around trying to keep that baby from coming to harm. Kindergarten Cop is dealing with very young kids. Junior about giving birth and being sympathetic as a father to new mothers. And Father's Day. I don't know what happens in Father's Day, I haven't seen it, but I can make some guesses based on the title. And none of this is me criticizing, it's just pointing out the simple fact. Ivan Reitman was 42 when this movie came out, and just about to become a father for the third time. He's not concerned with outrageous comedy anymore, and he's not really connected with youth culture. To me, Twins represents the start of a new phase in Ivan Reitman's career. His dad cycle. Or family cycle. Or whatever. You know what I mean. He's thinking about families now. And frankly, this phase will last him 10 years, and it won't be until the late 90s that he tries to get out of this mode of thinking. What else to say about this movie? Do I need to go on about how its premise doesn't make sense? And it doesn't answer why things happened. Why did Tony J. take Arnold to a private island? Why was everyone okay with sending Danny DeVito to an orphanage, despite the fact that even genetically inferior specimen in a test would still be worth studying? Not to mention, you know, the whole appeal to human decency of taking care of a child. Oh my gosh, this movie makes the jerk doctor out to be evil and Tony J being nice, but he really isn't. He just didn't bother to take in Vincent as well. Tony J lied just as much as the other doctor, about the mom being alive and about there being twins. Tony J and the mean doctor are equally evil, yet the movie treats one as good and the other as bad. That's very weird. And why all the lies? Nobody has any reason to lie in the way that they do in this movie. And it's kind of funny that there's a whole crime plot to this movie that frankly has nothing to do with the comedy premise. Sure, okay, a jet engine. Really quickly, I can't help but backseat script doctor. The movie shouldn't have been so focused on cars and on this MacGuffin of a jet engine of all things. What it should have been was some government agents trying to apprehend Julius now that he was in America. Right? Here's Captain America. Or, uh, Captain America by way of a Red Skull eugenics plot. But you have this great specimen. An evil scientist should send some thugs out to capture and study Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right? And then selfish Danny DeVito could have learned the value of family that way and rescued his brother. This also would have solved the Tony J problem, explaining that he kidnapped Julius as a baby so the kid would grow up on an idyllic island instead of a government facility. This would have solved so many things, tied the plot together, and make Tony J not accidentally evil for this movie. The conception, science, and mystery surrounding it wouldn't make any more sense, 
but it would all fit together better if the villains were out to capture Julius. They should have lost the stolen car, jet engine plot, and made it about trying to capture Arnold himself. This movie is not very well regarded by critics, and I can see why. It is dumb. But the teaming of Schwarzenegger and DeVito does work for me, and must have worked for a lot of audiences. I was pleasantly surprised watching Twins for the first time. If you want to watch a cheesy comedy that doesn't bother making sense, Twins is an okay time. Twins cost less than Ghostbusters, less than Legal Eagles as well, by the way, and it earned $216 million worldwide. And I can see why Ivan Reitman has a special affinity for this movie over some of his others. It was his first time working with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who he'd use again for two more movies, and Twins is Ivan's second most profitable film. It made just a tiny bit more than Ghostbusters 2 did in theaters. You can understand why Ivan Reitman has a bit more fondness for Twins. Hey, the big board. I love this thing. Number one is... Spin it. Ghostbusters. Number two is Stripes. Number three. You know, Meatballs might have a few stronger comedic moments, but it's awkward enough. I'm going to hand number three to Twins. If I wait long enough, I would honestly have a better time watching Twins again than Meatballs. So we've got Ghostbusters, Stripes, Twins at number three, Meatballs at number four, the short film Orientation, then Legal Eagles, and finally, Cannibal Girls. But, you know, congratulations to all the nominees. What does the future hold for Twins? It's interesting that Ivan Reitman has wanted to make triplets for years, which would be his only sequel since Ghostbusters 2. It sounds like this has been taking forever, but everyone also sounds positive about it. In 2015, talking to Howard Stern, Arnold Schwarzenegger said he even had Danny DeVito and Eddie Murphy over to his place for a meal, and they all sounded really positive about this movie and were cracking up at some of the possible jokes. Gah. He's also said the premise will be like, the mom has died, there's a third brother, so Eddie Murphy, and they have to find him to collect an inheritance. Blurg. Now that part, the inheritance trope, sounds moldy and old, but who knows. First we'll see if this movie ever comes through, then we'll see if it's any good. Late breaking news. In September of 2021, it's being reported that Triplets is a go-ahead, with Eddie Murphy gone and Tracy Morgan taking the spot as the third Benedict brother. Deadline reports that they'll start shooting in Boston in January of 2022. CAA will handle some of the financing, and apparently no studio is attached yet, so Ivan Reitman and pals can shop this movie around. I'm wishing good luck to the 70-year-old brothers finding their 52-year-old triplet, Tracy Morgan. Man, how long was that pregnancy? That's enough for today. I'm Ross May, and you can find me on Twitter at Ross May Writer, or go to rossmaywriter.com to email me there. Assuming it wasn't pushed back, I hope you all enjoy Ghostbusters Afterlife, directed by that kid with the basketball you see here in Twins. Please stay safe and see the new Ghostbusters movie whenever it's safe for you and your family. That's what I'll be doing. I'll see you in December. My pal Dave Babbitt and I have been watching all the old Godzilla films this year, 
the Showa movies, so we'll have a good discussion on that. And next year, everyone, I'm doing a big history on Columbia Pictures. This started out as me wanting to understand the business situation just for Ghostbusters 2, so I went all the way back to 1918 to make sure I had a full understanding of Columbia Pictures' entire history. Everyone, I am nothing if not thorough in my research. But yes, next year, come back to hear about the history of Columbia Pictures and a little upstart movie taking on Batman and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade all in 1989. It's a little movie called Ghostbusters 2. I'll be back. <laughs>